welcome to some bonus material for our second episode. This was our interview with Dr. Brunda and during the interview Dr. Brunda mentioned some very interesting information and interesting insights about counter narratives in history and how history teachers can look for marginalized stories in uh, in the master narrative of the curriculum and challenge those as well. Now, this seems more relevant than ever with the recent resurgence of Black Lives Matter protests all over the world, including in Europe. Therefore, we wish you a great listening experience and enjoy the learning. Thank you so much for joining our podcast uh, all the way from sunny, sunny California. And what listeners actually don't know is that we're recording this during the coronavirus pandemic, uh, which means that you're actually sitting outside on a porch and not in your office, as you normally are, probably. Um, yes. That that might mean that there is some bird chirping in the background. So we apologize to the <laughs> listeners the for the background noise. Yes. It's a nice sound, I think. So, okay. Uh, <laughs> we, we will, the uh, California we'll, birds. <laughs> yes. So obviously the... The history that we have, uh, European history, is very much intertwined with, with the history of indigenous peoples in, in, uh, in America and beyond, uh, for obvious reasons. Um, and, and in the Americas, I think indigenous people have always fought for their lands, for their, for their rights. Um, in Europe, we have probably a very little consideration about indigenous people because they're not here. They're on the other side of, of the ocean. Do you have any tips or, or concrete suggestions on how or where European history educators should, should look or what we should include in our, in our curriculum. Yeah, and it's interesting because um, given the, the, what we call the master narrative here, um, that you know, we're trying to de-Eurocentrize our curriculum in K through 12. Uh, and, um, I think I sent you the link to the multicultural conference that we just had last Saturday, the virtual. Uh, the gentleman who we had from Arizona who has been working integrally in looking at ethnic studies and making it a requirement within our schools, K through 12, uh, that, that what is it that we value? Um, and, and it's not to say that we get rid of any European history um, for our children to learn. We should be learning all histories. Uh, what, would, what would Europeans um, have to learn from indigenous people? Uh, it's fascinating that, that, <laughs> that Europe is referred to the old world, and this one is the new world. And I, and I always thought, you know, if you had twins born at the same time, wouldn't they be the same age? Um, so even in my own engagement with California Indians here on, on, in this part of the world, uh, there is such vast wisdom and knowledge that goes so deep that I'm amazed, um, I'm amazed that, that we don't know this and that we don't have this knowledge. Um, you've probably heard about the fires that we've been having here in California. Uh, California Indians here have, have been doing, um, controlled burns for a long time uh, before Europeans arrived here. And so working with your environment and, and being able to work in such a way that you're in relation to the world. Uh, and I've learned so many different tidbits of their information and what they've known because of their connection um, with, with their place that it's like, wow, um, 
what would happen if, if this knowledge were to go out? Knowledge of the plant people, knowledge of, the, of you know, those that fly in, in the sky. Um, it's, it's an orientation that I think got run over. And, and though, uh, though I know many of the people have been displaced and put on the lands that um, maybe they're not originally from, and often they were put in the worst locations, uh, that some of that knowledge is still there. It's whether or not people want to learn it. Uh, and if you look at that website, um, some, of the, so, some of the people that we've been able to, we were able to record, because uh, we were going to do a, a California Curriculum Summit as part of that conference, um, that you have the Winnemawintu, you have the Ohlone, um, you have some literature in relationship to some of the other tribes from down south and, and the experience with the California missions, that learning from them directly um, would be a benefit to understand an orientation that maybe you're not getting from the United States, but yet it's vital um, to who we are as a people and as a nation here. Did you know that even democracy came from, it, it didn't come from, they call it the founding fathers. It came from the Iroquois nation. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, it came from the Iroquois nation. Yeah, what happened was that all these people were, were living on the Eastern seaboard, right? And, and they weren't united or nothing. And, you know, they called themselves, you know, colonists. And, and so the people from the Iroquois nation, they got tired of dealing with all these different colonies and people. So eventually it was actually Benjamin Franklin, which I'll give credit to, to Benjamin, um, got together with one of the tribal leaders of the Iroquois. And that's in my book also. Uh, and, and so the Iroquois said, look, we have our own um, confederacy of the Iroquois nation comprised of different tribes. And so they handed over um, the, the idea, the concept of democracy. So when I think of the founding fathers, I always think of the Iroquois. Um, and so, you know, the, the so-called founding fathers that, that are given credit for democracy actually borrowed it from the Iroquois nation. Uh, and so, so much of what we have here, people don't even credit um, indigenous people, but yet that's the origins, yeah. Yeah, it's something else. Yeah. yeah, so if you're reading on it, it'll, it'll give you those references. Mm -hmm. Thank you. That's very interesting. And I think also a great example of a counter-narrative, how, how we have such a master narrative also within Europe. Because if we think about democracy, we always go to Athens, right? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> but now yeah. I think this would be a great opportunity for also European educators is to think about, hey, democracy, let's look outside Europe and mm. see how other people thought about dealing with representative and voices and how to govern a state. I think that's great. Thank you. But the thing, the thing that happened here, though, um, was that was that our nations were very um, are very different, and many of our our communities are matriarchal. And so, when when you had the Europeans coming here, um, there was a patriarchy that that sort of subsumed uh, what was handed to them. So, so the right to vote for women, for people of color. Um, and you had to be land owning over, so you had to be male land owning over the age of 35. And that was considered a citizen, not women, not people of color, not, not anyone who didn't own land. Um, and of course, anyone under the age of 35. So, so there was, there was so much um, exclusion that was then integrated with democracy 
that as a nation we've been having to fight now to get back to the original democracy that the Iroquois started with. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much. That's that's such a great addition. I think I hope it triggers uh, a lot of our listeners to dive into that topic uh, even more in our classrooms. Um, so besides actually as a professor, you're also an activist, I would say, by demanding equal and fair representation of Native Americans in the school curriculum. How do you see this for yourself, these different roles as an activist, educator, professor, researcher? Could you say something about that? Yeah, it's, um, it's I think, how, how people have become conditioned uh, to see difference. Um, and, and if you look at Albert Memmi's definition of racism, um, he, he says at first there's an identification of difference. Um, and, and difference doesn't have to be perceived negatively. But what happened is, is that then when you put a negative connotation to difference, and then you put power on it, now, now we have whatever ism that may be. Um, so if I look from here, I, I see pine trees, I see oak trees, uh, I see all kinds of different trees. There's not one dominating another. And I don't put more value on one tree than on another tree, right? Uh, and so as a, an indigenously identified woman here, um, that just my phenotype, despite the fact that, that half of my lineage is of European ancestry, um, has pretty much dominated the way the way people would interact with me here uh, And it was it's interesting that you should mention Greece um, earlier because I, I have a student in my class And I'm sure she would be okay with my sharing the story, but um, with this last week in a class it was shared how uh, Interviewing for a job here. She didn't get the job because she had a Greek accent She had an accent and was told to lose the accent and we were we were aghast, right? Um, and but yet, it it was different. Um, so what's an American accent? I you know I don't know. You know it's it's regional depending on where you come from. Uh, but it's that perception of difference is is that what I've always had to respond to as as a woman as a woman of color. Um, and so for me, just like all the beautiful birds, the different types of flowers, the different types of trees, and so forth. Do we do we celebrate it, or do we put value on it and, and lessen it? And and I think that's where we're looking at um, of how we perceive one another and what's been ingrained in in how we interact and how we connect with one another as hum humanity globally, even right. Um, you look at the coronavirus here, um, who we know disproportionately who's dying are people of color, low income. Uh, and and so now we see people protesting. Uh, we all we all want to be free of this, of course. Uh, but yet, if if it was disproportionately your Americans dying, I would still be you know staying at home and, and trying to be protective of of others. Um, so I I get taken aback when I when I see people protesting and saying, wait a minute, that do you not understand the impact on others, or is it that you don't care about the others who are being impacted by this, disproportionately speaking. Uh, so it's it's a fascinating observation of what's happening now. Yeah. 
Can I just clarify that with the protesting? Because I think you referred to the protesting that some people want to open up their states and- Yes, yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. Okay. yeah, there's people who are, yeah, they're, um, you know, we're, we've been told to stay at home, the social distancing, and we have people in some areas who are, who are protesting and they, they, want to, they want to be able to go out and have parties and go to the bars and, and, and yes, we all want to do that. Um, but we know that this, there's because of healthcare and, and people's um, you know, health in and of itself, that there's a disproportionality of who's dying from this. Um, and that's something I think we, we need to be attentive to, but it's interesting how people are responding um, and whether they care, whether they understand um, the implications of the protest and what that says to others. Yeah. yeah. Thank, thank you so much for, for clarifying that as well. Um, can I just elaborate a little bit more on these different roles and then uh, we, yeah, is that okay? Because I think that's interesting from a European perspective where um, uh, as an educator, we are often told not to be political uh, in the classroom and there is very much this um, idea of uh, neutrality, whereas in the US or at least in certain parts in the US, there's very clear understanding that education is political and that you cannot do anything else but make it political. So hence I was, that was kind of what I was referring to with those different roles as activist, educator and researcher. Um, so taking that into consideration that in Europe we don't really have that much of, an, of a tradition like that. Um, could you maybe say something about the benefits of being very clear about your political stance in the classroom? Yeah, um, I, I would say that that education um, is a, it's a tool of domination, uh, and so at least here in the United States, what, what we've seen is is the Eurocentric nature um, of the master narrative, um, and and the fact that our children, when they go to school and they learn about U.S. history, they tend to learn mostly, and I would say ninety five percent, and you'll see from my book I address this that they learn about white exploitive capitalist men. Uh, and so I, I'll give you just a snippet of, of what came to me one time when I was, we were moving our daughter to Boston uh, where she did her undergrad. And I was standing uh, right in front of this one statue on Beacon Street. And it, it was an image of a, of a man on a horse. And he was obviously Euro-American and there, and he was he was obviously some sort of officer and then the men that were marching alongside him were african-american and they had their mask muskets on their shoulder and i looked at it and i thought what what's this all about and how come i don't know about this um and i i started learning about colonel shaw and the men of the 54th regiment and and i you know and i've always been a very good student and very curious so i started um investigating and exploring and learning that um, that we were not taught about Euro Americans who did the right thing on behalf of others so Angelina Sarah Gremke who were born into a slaveholding family in South Carolina and how they would argue and fight with their family members across the dinner table uh, how they eventually joined the abolitionist movement in in the north or about William, uh, William Garrison, who uh, ran one of the longest running abolitionist newspapers out of Boston. It was almost tar feathered 
uh, because some European came over here and it was thought to be hanging out with him. And, and uh, so they were trying to get to that guy, but and ended up getting him and, and uh, stripped him of his clothes and, and uh, we're going to do more damage to him. And so, you know, what I talk about in the book are the people who, who they were European of ancestry, but they came and they signed justice. So that's why in the opening I talk about, we're not going to put all Europeans into this, um, into the whole basket of they were all bad and, and that we detest the Mayflower ever coming here. Not all people came with bad heart and not all people act on bad heart. Um, so we, so in learning uh, fr from Europeans who, who came to, to love and to be loved. Um, and I think the personal side of this, uh, maybe what you're getting at Mickey is, is uh, as I shared with you earlier that I, I, I have two sides of my lineage. And so I'll tell you a quick story of my great grandmother Juanita. My great-grandmother Juanita was born to um, a, a wealthy a Spanish family in Chihuahua, Mexico. And she married a mestizo, a mestizo, somebody of mixed Spanish and um, indigenous blood. And because she married this man, the family cut her off. Okay, they cut her off from, from the wealth. Uh, my grandmother, her, her only daughter, told me these stories. I never met my great-grandmother Juanita. Well, the last pandemic we had was 1917, uh, 1918. And because I was raised by my maternal grandmother, I learned the stories of, of she being in Morenci, Arizona, at a copper mining town where the, the uh, last pandemic, the Spanish, what is the Spanish flu came through. And apparently what happened was that she, my grandmother lost her father-in-law. She lost her husband. She lost one of her children who died, a baby that died in her arms, and then she lost her mother. So my grandmother had to bury three of her family members um, on a hillside, uh, a segregated hillside in Morenci, Arizona. And the last to die was my great-grandmother Juanita, uh, who was then transported in a, in a carriage and a horse um, back to Chihuahua, Mexico to be buried. So that, that's a family story um, and, and that who knows, you know, had she survived, had she not married my, my great grandfather who was a mestizo. Not all Europeans came in, in to, to exploit, uh, not all came to, um, to mistreat indigenous people, uh, not all uh, Europeans saw slavery as a good thing as was done to people of that were brought here from Africa. Um, so with that, those narratives are important for us to know and understand as well, um, that it's a complex story.